0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're going to continue on this morning, obviously, in our study in the book of Exodus. And as we've said last week, we've entered into the most famous or the most well-known section in the book, the so-called 10 plagues. And again, we learned last week that it may be more accurate uh, to label these the 11 signs. 10 plagues, 11 signs, either is fine. In these wonders and signs in chapter 7 and following, God says at the beginning of chapter 7 that He's doing two things. He says, first, I'm delivering and saving my people from oppression and slavery and bondage. And second, God says, in chapter 7, verse 4, He says, I'm executing great acts of judgment. We're spending uh, three weeks uh, looking at the three interconnected yet distinct layers of God's great Acts of judgment. In other words, I think there are three obvious groups in the passage that are being judged. Last week, uh, we considered how, first and foundationally, uh, God's judgment or fight was against the gods of Egypt, uh, said to be the gods of Egypt in chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, Next week, we will, uh, Lord willing, study God's just punishment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. Uh, But today, we're going to look at God's judgment on the idols of Egypt, uh, God's polemic against or God's argument against uh, the Egyptian pantheon. And so even though I only read uh, the, the latter half of chapter 7, I actually intend to make mention of and, and teach on uh, plagues 1 through 9, uh, signs 2 through 10. There's just no way to read four chapters um, at this point in the worship service. So by way of introduction to these nine plagues from the bloody Nile all the way down to 72 hours of darkness, I want you to consider this, okay? It seems apparent that if Pharaoh had obeyed, verse 16, or listened, verse 22, if he would have listened to Yahweh and done what God had said, it seems apparent that the plagues would have come to an end. But in every plague... From 1 to 9, there is mention made of Pharaoh's hard heart, of Pharaoh's stubbornness. So, critics and scholars and Christians have all noted that ultimately Pharaoh's hard heart was God's doing. First, if you uh, just look at the beginning of chapter 7 and verse 3, you'll see a refrain that happens multiple times through the narrative Yahweh says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Second, uh, more often than not, you're going to read when it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened as a statement of fact, you're going to read right after that, as the Lord had said. And third, even when you read a Pharaoh hardening his own heart, choosing to be stubborn, more often than not, you're going to read the refrain, as the Lord had said, referring back to both chapter 4, a sermon that we've already had and chapter 7, verse 3. And the question of the scholars and the critics and the Christians is this, why? In fact, if you get towards the end of the plague narrative, when it it appears as though Pharaoh is trying to tap out, it looks as though Pharaoh is trying to get out of this fight. And at the end of the narrative, when he is trying to get out, God's three most direct statements uh, happen like this, chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh did not let the people go. In fact, God told Moses in chapter 4, he said, listen, it won't be until the 10th plague that Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. He says, but when the death of the firstborn happens, he will, in fact, not let you go. He will send you from his land. And again, the question is, why? In fact, Yahweh himself speaks to this tension twice in the plague narrative. In chapter 9, verse 15, after six plagues, Yahweh tells Moses, he says, tell this to Pharaoh, for by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and struck your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In chapter 10, verse one, Yahweh says to Moses, go into Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart and I've hardened the hearts of his servants so that I may show these signs, plural, of mine Among them. And so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs, plural, I did among them, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Actually, seven times in the nine plagues, you will read a phrase like the one I just read, chapter 10, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 17. In our text, it says essentially this this is happening so that you may know. That Israel's God is the Lord. And that is in some measure the answer to why. But let's ask next, how? How do the first nine plagues prove that Israel's God is Lord? If you were to study ancient Egyptian history and literature and culture, you would see that every plague, with the one possible exception, that every plague is a direct attack on a particular God in the Egyptian's mind. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a manifestation of happy, and in many ways, the God of life. Happy gave life to fish and fowl, plants and people, and through, he did all this through the Nile. So when Yahweh struck the Nile, struck as mentioned in seventeen, twenty, and 25 of our passage, and the Nile turned to blood, and the fish died, and the people had to dig for water to sustain life, when that happened, God was saying something pretty direct to happy. The Egyptians worshipped Heket, the goddess of childbirth. Heket was depicted in Egyptian art as having the the head of a frog. So, I guess they're jumpy, I don't know. So, frogs were seen as the symbols of fertility and would have never been intentionally squashed. So, at the end of plague two, when the land was covered with dead frogs, God was making a statement. The Egyptians worshiped Senehem, a God who supposedly protected them from all aerial pests, especially gnats and flies and locusts. So in plagues 3, 4, and 8, when the land was covered with such pests, God was saying something. He was building a polemic. He was was making an argument against the Egyptians' gods. And since God had more to say, it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart because he had more signs to give. The Egyptians worshipped Hathor, the goddess who personified uh, the principles of love, beauty, music, and motherhood. Hathor was depicted, I don't know why, but as a cow in Egyptian iconography. So in Plague 5, when the livestock of the Egyptians began to die, God was saying something. The Egyptian god Seth was the god of storm, and according to the Egyptians, he manifests himself in wind and rain and lightning and hail, so Plague 7, when hell came upon the land, unlike anything the Egyptians had ever seen, crushing beast and plant and man, Yahweh was saying this, Seth is small change compared to me. The Egyptians believed that Ra or Re or Re or Re, however you say it, the sun god, they believed he would traverse the sky every day in his celestial boat. And every night he would descend into the dark netherworld, and he would defeat Apophis, the spirit of chaos, and he would arise anew victorious every morning. So plague nine for Ra to not show up three days in a row was a statement about victory and power and light and life. So why didn't God let Pharaoh give in? Why did he harden his heart? Why not skip to the final plague and be done with it all? Because God had an awful lot to say about the Egyptians' gods or idols or false gods. Indeed, great acts of judgment. Today's sermon is obviously about idolatry, worshiping false gods. We're going to spend our time on four relatively short points. Defining, diagnosing, dismantling, and displacing idols. Defining, diagnosing, dismantling, and displacing idols. So first, defining idolatry. So Paul gives a great definition for idolatry in Romans chapter 1. He says, idolatry is, ex- is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. As a definition, idolatry is worshiping, serving, giving a God sized affection and loyalty to a created thing in hopes that the created thing will give us life in return. Idolatry is taking a good created thing, just about any good created thing, and making it an ultimate thing and trying to draw from it more life than God intended to give through it. It Could be sex money, good grades, athletic success, a great reputation, a certain image. It could be a particular possession, a particular house, a particular relationship, a particular status. It could be in a relationship on Facebook. It could be single on Facebook. There's all kinds of things that we can give a God-size affection to. They're just created things. So with the Nile River as an example, instead of worshiping Yahweh for the gift of life and the gift of the Nile, The Egyptians worshipped the Nile instead, the created thing, rather than the creator. So annually, every year, the Egyptians would go on a pilgrimage to what is now Old Cairo, and and they would go to Happy's house or Happy's temple, and the Egyptians would offer gifts and sing songs, and they would worship Happy, the God that they believe manifests himself in the Nile. They actually believed that the Nile was somehow in heaven used by Happy to provide water to everyone else on earth. Listen to a hymn, a famous hymn, written to Happy. By the way, it's H-A-P-I. I I like calling them Happy. I got no idea if that's how you say it. All distant foreign countries. This is a hymn sung to Happy. All distant foreign countries, thou makest their life also. For thou hast set a nile in heaven, that it may descend for them and make waves upon the mountains to water the fields of their towns. How effective they are thy plans, O Lord of eternity. And it was their expectation that because they had traveled and sang and offered gifts, It was their expectation that happy would again that year flood the Egyptian basin and the Nile basin and bring the annual abundance that they were so used to. I don't have time to tell you about Haket and Seth and Ra and Hathor, but it's no wonder in Exodus 20 when Yahweh gives the 10 commandments, it reads like this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. So one more quick point in our definition for idolatry, and we'll move on. Listen again to the first commandment. Commandment two is about idols, images, likenesses, actual manifestations to bow down to and worship. Listen again to commandment one have no other gods before me. The ESV, the translation I generally read, puts a footnote at the bottom, and it says it could be have no other gods beside me. The the Hebrew preposition here can mean before, on top, beside, in addition to, or together with. It just depends on the context. And, And God was not so concerned that the Israelites would replace him with a false god, but that they would try to add a false god together with him in the pantheon of their heart. And I know for us, for me, the temptation is not an idol in the place of Jesus, but Jesus plus a created thing. I think I'll have life if I have Jesus and success, Jesus and natural childbirth, Jesus and Winnie Palmer delivery. That I, if I have Jesus and this one thing, I'm going to have life. It's not that we want to get rid of Jesus. It's just we want more than Jesus. Is this not what the Philistines instinctively did when they captured the ark this this week in 1 Samuel 5? In chapter 4, they were incredibly afraid of Yahweh. They had indeed heard of all that he had done in Egypt, which is one of the reasons he said he had these nine signs. In chapter 5, upon defeating the Israelites, their thought was not, destroy the ark of the covenant. It's what they thought was a, was a manifestation of Yahweh. Their thought was not, let's destroy Dagon, our national god. This god's better. But their thought and their instinct was, let's put the ark next to, beside, with Dagon. Because two gods is better than one, right? So defining idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping, serving, giving a god size affection and loyalty to created things, plural in hopes that the created things, plural, will give us life in return. So, the Bible assumes that we are all idolatrous to some degree. It's harder for us to see this because we live in a nation where we do not have our politicians proclaim our gods for us, although we have some. And we in the States live in a day that's dominated by naturalistic, humanistic, uh, atheistic worldviews, and, and so we have these philosophies which would make the creation of an actual idol or image or icon, uh, the, the making of those are obsolete in our day and age. But it doesn't mean that our hearts are not idol factories. In 1 John 5.21, this is diagnosing idols. John ends his letter with this, the last thing on his mind that he leaves them with, little children. It's one of his favorite titles for them. Keep yourself from idols. 1,500 years after the Exodus, and God is still warning his people about idolatry. Keep to yourself, keep, keep yourself, excuse me, it is better translated guard yourself. Be on the lookout against. It's a word used for watchmen in a tower looking for attack. And the point is they're sneaky. They're stealthy. They're not obvious. In our day and age, you have to be on the lookout. You have to learn how to diagnose the idols of your heart or you will lose. If you don't think we're still idolatrous as human beings, have a child. Every one of my five children had a thumb or a blankie or a passy or a belly button that they would run to to soothe them. When things were out of their control. And so we have alcohol and Facebook and religiosity and pornography and iPhones and Words with Friends and Fruit Ninjas. The question is not, do you have any idols, but how many and which ones? So I want to talk about I want to give five diagnostic tools to help us identify our idols. It's not as simple for us as it was in Egypt. Have you ever heard um, the litany of jokes by Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if? Uh, A great addition to the world of stand-up comedy. You might be a redneck if you think the last words to the Star-Spangled Banner are, gentlemen, start your engines. You might be a redneck if you think a stock tip is advice on worming your hogs. You might be a redneck if you've been married three times and have the same in-laws. That's horrible. (laughs) You might, I had to go like through three pages to find appropriate ones. (laughs) You might be a redneck if you think possum is the other white meat. So as I give these diagnostics, the reason they all start with you might be a redneck if is just because one is true doesn't mean you're a redneck. But if six out of ten are true, you might have something to think about. Same of diagnostic tools. This is the tricky part about idols. They're created good things that we turn into ultimate things. It's not so simple as if it's there, you're Idolatrous, tool number one in diagnosing idols. Catch yourself daydreaming. When the deepest parts of you escape from reality and try and find life outside of you in another realm, what do you think about? God and His goodness and His glory and His love and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth or retirement at the age of 35, blogs on food allergies when you catch yourself daydreaming, if you're constantly thinking of yourself laying on a beach, that might be one thing. If you're laying on the beach and some of your parts are smaller than they currently are or larger than they currently are, you might be a redneck. That was a joke. You might have an idol. If you see yourself laying next to that person on the beach and the person's not your spouse or if it is your spouse and the parts are bigger and smaller, you might have a problem too. Number two, reflect on extreme emotion in a context where others are encouraged if you're elated you might be in the presence of an idol if others are a little annoyed and you're irate it may be that your ability to worship an idol is being blocked if others grieve with a hope and you're in despair and despondency something may be going on number three watch for worship expressions. The Bible would define worship as internal and external. Worship is a heart reality that is expressed physically, singing, shouting, clapping, dancing with reckless abandonment, giving of money and making sacrifice with no second thought. Look for these behaviors and what brings them about and you may be in the presence of happy. Two weeks ago, Our family was doing CBR, and we were looking at Psalm 47 together. And we were talking about worship. I was explaining that the biblical worship includes clapping, which is probably more like applauding, shouting and singing loud songs of joy, raising hands, falling to our knees. And my children are getting smarter. And the older one asked, why doesn't New City do that? And I said, where do you see people doing that? Well, Justin Bieber concerts, Florida football games, Irish pubs, and I said, that's why we don't do it. Watch for worship expressions. Just might be an idol. Fourth, watch for the particular worship expression of boasting. We learned in Psalm 49 yesterday that whatever our heart trusts in, our heart cannot stop boasting about it, Diagnostic number four, what do you talk about all the time? Listen to Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. His wisdom has become an idol. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. His body has become an idol. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. His money has become an idol. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, that I practice the gospel. Steadfast love, Justice and righteousness in the earth. Diagnostic four is related uh, to diagnostic five. Phone a friend. Ask the people around you. Ask them, what do I boast about? What do I talk about all the time? They know. We're self-deceived. They're not deceived about our idols. They're deceived about their idols, but not ours. If you have a spiritually mature friend, and if they get lots of time with you, ask them pointedly, what are my idols. They know. Trust me. I recently asked Trisha to help me see what the difficult realities uh, were in being married to me, and among which is another way of talking about idols. I'll show you in a second. Among other things, she said this. She said, I know that the kids know that you love them. I know that the kids know that you love me. I think one day the kids will tell their friends or maybe their counselors that you love the idea of them being successful in the future more than you love them in the here and now. she was right my idols uh, or love of being successful of being applauded all too often trump my love for my family and my friends i could have never sat down with a journal and a cup of coffee and figured that one out but she said it so crisply and so clearly it's almost as if she said it again today when i repeated it verbatim ask a friend We're all idolatrous. We all look for too much life in created things. We have to learn to diagnose our idols because they're not obvious. They don't show up as idols. They show up as good things, asking for ultimate affections. But when we find our idols, the text is inviting us to deal with them in two ways. Join God in his work of dismantling them and grow in the habit of displacing them. Join God first and his work of dismantling our idols. So, this is the major point, I think, in plagues one through nine. God is defeating and plaguing and striking and dismantling the Egyptians' idol structure. He is proving. That he is Lord. Again, no less than seven times, Yahweh says these plagues are happening for this reason that somebody, sometimes it says Pharaoh, sometimes it says the Egyptians, sometimes it says Moses, sometimes it says the Israelites, sometimes it says Moses' grandchildren. One time it says, so everybody to the ends of the earth will know that I am Lord. Not only was the Nile water turned to blood, but the rivers and the canals and the ponds and their pools. And if the Egyptian thought, I'll run to my container, my wood or stone container, and find life, they get there, and even there, blood. God is perpetually in the business of dismantling idols and showing forth his supremacy. Remember the Philistines, they captured the Ark of the Covenant, they captured Yahweh in a sense, and they took the Ark into Dagon's house, into Dagon's temple, and they put the Ark beside Dagon, same word, and then verse 3 of 1 Samuel 5, and when the people rose early the next day, behold, look, see, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You know you have an idol when you're always having to put it back in place. That's a bad sign. Verse four. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, look, see, consider, think. Dagon had fallen face down on the ground, that's worship, before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. And so what did they do? They gave Yahweh back. Why they didn't throw Dagon away, I'll never know. But God, whether we see it or not, is perpetually in the business of dismantling our idols and showing forth his supremacy. One of the idols that pastors will joke about from time to time is their library, it's their books. Uh, As Shakespeare once said, many a truth are spoken in jest. And so Rue, our pastor of leadership development, has a very impressive library, a very impressive pantheon. If you will, and as you may or may not know, we moved uh, this last week to a new office and Rue had to transport his idols, I mean books, and uh, prop them back up again. And of course, we joked about this a lot. So on Monday of this week, after reading of Dagon's inability to stay in place, I went to the office early in the morning and I was just walking around the space praying for you and for the staff and what God would want us to do in the future. And I walked into Rue's office to pray for him, knowing he was probably still asleep. And I was shocked. I was so shocked I took a picture of what I saw. Would you, would you show the people what I saw, please? <laughs> a shelf had given way and broken. Books had fallen to the ground. And look at the book that's shown. Is shown. It's called Dumbing Us Down. <laughs> I did not stage that. It absolutely happened. God couldn't have been more obvious. By the way, Gatto, great book. Dumbing us down, I recommend it highly. Uh, So I go off to an appointment, probably serving one of you, and uh, I come back to the office, 11, 12, 13 o'clock, something like that, and I walk into Rue's office to show him the picture I had, and instead of repenting in sackcloth and ashes, instead of pouring dirt on his head and gnashing his teeth and wailing and lamenting, he's putting the shelf back together and propping up Dagon again. If we'll just behold and look, we'll see that God is dismantling our idols right in front of our eyes. Once you identify an idol or two or three, just ask the question, is my idol delivering me? Is it saving me? Have I ever really been satisfied by this idol? Have I ever been given peace and rest and contentment and joy? Or am I always anxious and restless and dissatisfied in its presence? Has my idol ever stood me up and put me in place, or am I exhausted from propping it up? And additionally, not only do they not satisfy us, our idols, if we'll pay attention, are actually destroying us. Think about the plagues. Look at all the incredible ironies in plagues one through nine. The Nile, the supposed source of life, becomes death, stench, wearisome labor. The gnats and the flies and the locusts destroy the property of the Egyptians, proving that Sainahem had no power to protect and deliver. The Egyptians actually worshipped Seth when he would give hail because it was such a great storm with a lot of moisture and a lot of rain. But God brings on the land hail larger than anything they had ever seen, showing that when you make a created thing, an ultimate thing, it destroys you. Think about our lives and our idols. It's easy to see with crack cocaine, the promise of life and joy that brings about agony and death. It's easy to see in sexual freedom with STDs and shame. But keep thinking, if that kitchen is going to make you alive, what are you going to do in two years when it's obsolete? If that figure is going to make you peaceful, what are you going to do when mother nature and time and gravity take its toll? Or what are you going to do when you run out of money making gravity stop working? If pornography is so amazing, why do we keep searching and thinking that the real enduring pleasure must be right around the corner? I must not be doing this right. It must be at the next website. I must not be in the right chat room. It's never given enduring satisfaction, not once. There are few things more potentially damaging to a child than a dad loving the future child more than the present child want to increase the chance of the future child being a mess, ironically, focus on that future child at the expense of the present child. If we'll stop and look and behold, once we've diagnosed our idols, one, two, three, if we'll just ask the question, God, show me the dismantling of this idol and show forth yourself supreme. Join God in the work he's doing. There's two ways of dealing with idols. They both have to happen. We have to be set free from the slavery. We have to be released from the captivity. We have to be sent to God and the life that he gives us through these created things. And the first way to deal with an idol is in the realm of repentance. I just described it. It's joining and watching God as he dismantles our idols, hating them, turning from them, repenting. The second is the realm of faith and gratitude. It's displacing the idol with worship. Lastly, displacing idols. I did not say misplacing or replacing idols. I said displacing idols. Many of you were probably just like me at some point in elementary school. Your teacher brought you an entire your science teacher brought you a full bowl of water and and a, and a potato or some other uh, solid uh, reality, and she said, "Place the potato in the water and take notes on what happens. What happens?" The potato displaced the water. The best way I know of to see idols diminished is to displace them with passionate worship of Jesus. Thomas Chalmers famously wrote a piece of literature called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. To expel is to force someone, to make them leave a place. If you want to expel your idols, you have to get a new affection. You can't simply decide that we're done with them. We can't simply say, I hate them, no more of them. We have to fill their place in our heart with a new affection, an affection for Jesus. If you know the plague narrative in Exodus, you know that the plagues increase in intensity and destruction from plagues one to nine. It's in the seventh plague, the eighth sign, the plague of hail, that we read that humans die for the first time. But God gives a warning in chapter 9, verse 18. He says, Behold, look, see, pay attention. About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send. God says, send. Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And as the story unfolds, you read that some hurried out and they got their slaves and their animals and they brought them into their houses. And others decided to just leave their slaves and their animals and their loved ones in the field. Want to know the difference between the two? The ones who acted on God's word, it says they feared the Lord. Fear is not the same as being afraid in the Old Testament. Fear is awe, reverence, worship, respect. The fear of Seth had given way to the fear of Yahweh. If we want to be free from slavery, the slavery of thinking that the right body size or shape will make us happy. Uh, the slavery of thinking that if we have the right friends, we'll be okay. The slavery of thinking if I just get into that inner circle, I will be delivered. If we want to be free from that tyranny, start every day worshiping God City Bible reading is not about gathering more biblical data. It's not about checking something off the list. It's not about getting better. It's about worship and adoration and thanksgiving. Want to be free from the love of money and the desire for money and the anxiety that comes along with money? Want to be free from the tyranny of being successful or pretty or in control or comfortable? Come to worship and let go. And I mean let go release yourself into the arms of God. Abandon your concerns over what others might think of you and worship. More important than defining, than diagnosing, than dismantling is the displacing of an idol. In a moment, we're gonna close in worship and we'll have a chance to do something about our idols. We'll actually have a chance to do something about our idolatry. We can crowd them out by worshiping God. Or we can worship and bow down to and look for life in our idols. What others might think of us, the desire to be in control of the situation, wanting to be comfortable. First practical step, worship. I'm gonna give you a chance in a second. Last thought, what will drive us to worship? What will compel us and motivate us and draw us and release us? Remember how I said the Egyptians would take annual pilgrimages to Happy's Temple? They would offer their gifts and sing their songs and they would make sacrifice and they would walk away with an expectation. Happy has to bless us. Happy has to now flood the Nile Basin. Happy has to now give us life because we've done this religious act. The Egyptian religion was just like every other historic world religion. We obey, we act, we do right, we worship, We keep our end of the bargain and you have to bless us. You have to provide for us and you have to give us life. But think about how God saved the Israelites. Think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the exact opposite of every other world religion, historic or current. God saved the Israelites and delivered the Israelites before they ever did anything right. And because of it, they obeyed. They acted. They did the right thing. They responded in worship. Jesus died for us when we could do nothing to put him in our debt. When we were dead in our sins, when we were unable to act, when we were unable to do right, when we were unable to worship, God did not discard us and damn us and condemn us. He became a baby boy and lived perfectly and died horrifically for us. What will free us to worship and not worry about losing control? It's this, seeing Jesus giving up control to save us, allowing himself to be captured, to be tied up, to be nailed to the cross so he could be with us forever. What will free us to worship and not worry about what others think? It's this, seeing Jesus naked and ridiculed on the cross and staying there for us not driven by man's approval, driven by the goal of saving us. What will free us to worship and not fear being uncomfortable? It's this, seeing Jesus horribly uncomfortable on the cross for us, back mutilated, wrists and feet pierced, splitting headache from the crowns, the crown of thorns, and he stays there. Let's pray and let's beg God to give us sight Jesus, we thank you that you died for us before we ever did anything right, before we ever worshiped you right, before we ever denounced the first idol, before we ever dismantled the first idol, before we ever did anything in making any progress. You died for us, and you chose us, and you gave us new life, and you brought about these realities in us. We thank you that you do not get into the church by what you do and what you accomplish. You get into the church by being in great need and having no resources in and of yourself to do anything about it. God, would you give us sight of your love and your grace? Would you give us sight of your compassion? Would you give us sight of your forbearance? Give us sight of your patience. Would you draw forth from us worship? that displaces the idols and the worshiping of things that cannot save. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.